Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Listener question from Gabriel. He quoted me when I said, The world is not exactly chock full of people who are voluntarists, who've got self-knowledge, people who've been to therapy, people who have good relationships, people who reject the state and the initiation of force. And he writes, Nor will it ever be, Steph, not even close. And therein lies the fundamental flaw in your brand of philosophy. Your ideal society requires for the average human a minimum threshold of intelligence and morality that cannot be met. I find many things you teach very useful on a micro level, and they will help many individuals in their quality of life and their relationships. But the debate about extending them to a large enough population to change our social societal structure is moot. I think that's a great question and it's a great comment and it's a great objection. And um, there's no argument to it, right? This is, self-knowledge will teach you this, Gabriel, that if you respond to someone and deny their arguments without making a counter-argument, you are clearly and obviously revealing emotional resistance. Pushback without reason is an emotional defense, and you're not making an argument. Now, if you put on the not making an argument, nah, not an argument, N-A-A, if you put on the nah filter, we might as well have closed off our comment section for the most part, because very few people make an actual argument. Or if they make an argument, they make an inconsequential argument, completely tangential to the main issue if I made some minor error in math or, you know, ah, right? I mean, it's not not relevant. So it will never, the world will never be full of people who are voluntarists, who have self-knowledge, who've been to therapy. Well, of course, in the future, we hope to build a society where people won't really need to go to therapy uh, in the, you know, when... Um, when the uh, polio vaccine was created, the hope was uh, for a future without iron lungs and, you know, it's largely been achieved. So the hope is to not have children who are broken and who need therapy and to whom, and, and who don't live in a society to whom self-knowledge puts them at odds with their society, right? Because right now, uh, self-knowledge, philosophical consistency, uh, integrity, virtue, really living in and acting on your values puts you directly at odds with society. And not just like, in terms of people won't like you or people will be bothered by you, in terms of like you'll go to jail, right? Like if you, uh, I never advocate disobeying the law, but the reality is that if you uh, don't want to pay your taxes, if you find uh, funding uh, wars and the military industrial complex and the enslavement of the poor on the new plantations of the welfare state, if you find these things objectionable and you wish to not submit to violence and not... Uh, be forced to fund things that, that are morally repulsive to you, you'll go to jail. Guys will come with guns to your house and take you in a wagon and put you in jail. So uh, integrity at the moment is incredibly costly. It's not even as beneficial as a black market is in terms of uh, uh, economy and payoff because there's no personal profit in it for the most part. So... Not that I'm advocating a black market. So right now, uh, people are incredibly punished, both socially and legally, for integrity, for, for morality, for ethics. 
And so saying, well, if that ever changes, people's behavior won't change is, um, it's just false. I mean, people respond to incentives and the social cues are uh, obey and conform and surrender or we will break you. We will break you in two. We will throw you into the rape rooms of modern prisons until you are like Winston Smith at the end of 1984, back in love with Big Brother. That is the reality of the society that we live in. Your ideal society requires, he says, for the average human, a minimum threshold of intelligence and morality that cannot be met. Now, <laughs> what I'm trying to do is gooey up philosophy. <laughs> Probably that doesn't make sense. That's going to be taken out of context. So what I mean is that most people, like your average grandmother, is not logging into a Unix work- workstation or a, um, a TRS-80 or some sort of tandem workstation and uh, DQ bang A, uh, typing in uh, command lines in order to do, to do stuff. And um, you had, uh, of course, originally there was command line only. Uh, back, uh, boy, my first computer, I, I got a tiny inheritance. I guess it wasn't that tiny. I got an inheritance from my grandmother when she died. And I used it to buy an Atari 800, the one with the keyboard, and I do believe 16K of RAM. Oh, yeah, you could do Graphics 8 or GR.8. And that's when I learned to program and all this kind of cool stuff, thanks to my math teacher, a guy who let me off math class and let me go to the computer lab, uh, which was fantastic. Thanks, Mr. R. But... Um, your average grandmother is not going to be logging in and doing command line stuff. And then, of course, there was DOS, and then there was ASCII graphical, quote, pseudo-graphical layers over DOS. And then uh, there was Windows, um, which was a GUI over DOS. And um, uh, GUIs got better, uh, graphical user interface, uh, it's a GUI. And then we got to touchpads, touchscreens, and so on. And we got voice commands, and like it's basically become as friendly as possible. As, so, so saying computer use will never spread to the general population because you need a whole basement full of vacuum tubes and you need command line interfaces or you have to scratch out. You know, this is government education. <laughs> Only class I ever failed in high school was a computer science class when I was com- doing computer science all the time on my spare time because you had to fill out these cards uh, to, to run your assembly commands. So saying, well, no, nobody's people, the idea that people are going to get involved in computers in any, because you need a basement full of vacuum tubes and command lines or scratchy uh, on, I mean, just no, it's not going to happen. But that's because computers weren't user-friendly enough. Computers were not user-friendly enough. The right supply will create a demand. So people who never would have imagined buying a Unix computer will buy an iPad because it's pretty easy. I mean, it's almost infinitely easier compared to command line to get done what you need to get done. Although I still know people who love reveal codes in WordPerfect 5.1, but that's a topic for another time. So when you make technology or when you make complexity user-friendly, then you spread it's adoption by the general population. You know, cars used to be hobbyists, nightmares, right? I mean, I guess for a hobbyist, a nightmare is a plus, right? But cars, they used to 
fall apart all the time. You had to stop and keep cranking them. You needed basically to travel with a mechanic because they broke down all the time. There really weren't any roads. So if you said, well, cars are going to be the dominant method of transportation in the future, people would say, it's never going to happen. There are no roads. (laughs) You can't travel with a mechanic or they're too unreliable. People even believe that if you traveled over 20 miles an hour, you wouldn't be able to breathe enough oxygen. You had to wear goggles. No, right? But things change. When things improve, their adoption becomes more widespread. When things become more user-friendly and more reliable, then their adoption becomes more uh, widespread. This is um, basic economics. So my goal is to make philosophy (laughs) user-friendly. to GUI up philosophy, to put a graphic user interface on philosophy, to make it uh, actionable. Because if you make philosophy actionable, then there's a point to listening to it, right? If we're talking about, like if all I did on this show uh, was talk about, uh, you know, Kierkegaard's definition of that and um, Aristotle's approach to this, I mean, there'd be some people who'd be mildly interested, uh, but uh, it would not spread because it would not be actionable. And... um, It'd sort of be like selling people a computer and saying, you should use this to write stuff, but there's no email and no printer. And so you can't ever get the writing off the computer. Well, it wouldn't be that valuable to people, right? So my goal is to make philosophy user-friendly. And that is to, I don't use a lot of technical language. Uh, I was very influenced by a philosophy professor in graduate school who reminded me that Socrates never used the word epistemology or noumenal or metaphysical. He just, he used the language of the land. He used the language of the people to talk about philosophy and to goad them into, um, well, his first command, know thyself, was to, you, you can't know the world unless you know yourself. Uh, because you, it's like trying to figure out colors if you don't know what color glasses you're wearing. You're going to get confused. You need to know your own perceptions and prejudices in order to see the world uh, clearly. So my goal is to take philosophy and make it approachable, make it valuable, make it actionable, make it useful. And I'm really constantly focusing on philosophy that can be explained to four-year-olds. Now, I've been a father for six and a half years, a stay-at-home dad for six and a half years. Half years. I have talked about just about everything to do with ethics with my daughter, uh, starting when she was about uh, two. She gets it. It's not brain surgery. Basic ethics is not brain surgery. I'm not saying that, you know, if I read her Universally Preferable Behavior, which is my book on ethics, you can get at freedomainradio.com slash free. I don't read that to her as a bedtime story, but I've got a, um, a podcast, which you can find at fdrpodcast.com, called The ABCs of UPB, which is how you explain ethics to uh, little children. Because um, you, you can't have moral responsibility without moral understanding. And if you can't explain your ethical system to children, good luck, Kant. <laughs> good luck, Plato. If you can't explain your ethical system to children, then you have done something wrong. You've made a mistake. It's what Aristotle used to say, like, if you've, if you've gone through some ethical system and what's come out is rape is moral, then I don't care what you've, what you've done, you've made some kind of mistake. And, uh, you know, if you've got some system, uh, some hypothesis in physics, and the, if you put all the numbers and all of the variables into your equations, what comes out is a rock should fall up from the earth. I don't care what you've done. You've made a mistake somewhere. I don't even need to. You go find it if you want. And so, you know, this is why the ethical system that I have proposed, universally preferable behavior, 
exists independently of state. It states and, and governments requires no, consu- uh, no commandments, no assumptions. It's not just plant the flag and if you like it, let's set up a kingdom here. Uh, it is uh, rational, objective, empirical. It explains history uh, and it bans rape, theft, assault and murder, the four major bans that all moral systems have to deal with. I mean, it's inconvenient to exist in hier- existing hierarchies of power, but that's sort of the point <laughs> of philosophy, isn't it? To be, uh, to be inconvenient to falsehood uh, and to immorality. I mean, well, I hope that a cancer doctor is inconvenient to cancer, otherwise he's not much of a doctor. <laughs> and so philosophy is supposed to be inconvenient to wrongdoers and liars and cheats and sophists, uh, and that's um, one of the ways in which I steer this ship of thought. Uh, and so... Yeah, so right now, of course, yeah, philosophy is considered to be abstract, you know, <laughs> pointless, uh, useless, uh, right? And uh, it's sort of, um, as I often do, go back to Bill and Ted's excellent venture. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K, dude. But um, there's actually a pretty good, like, it, it's sad when, in if you've ever seen, if you've not seen Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and the following bogus journey, where they go to hell and they say, dude, this is nothing like our album covers. <laughs> but um, you got to see it because there's a great bit of Freud in there. Dude, she's your mom. Uh, and philosophy is Socrates, <laughs> dust in the wind, you know, which is dust in the wind. I mean, that's not philosophy. I mean, that's not even great music. Uh, actually, it's pretty good. But um, so... If you make philosophy valuable and useful and powerful and actionable and comprehensible to people, then you've just gooeyed up philosophy. It's no longer command line where you can't print off anything you've written, right? It's a touchscreen, it plays music, uh, it's easy to work with, and it has utility. It's actionable. So that is how philosophy is going to spread. And I guarantee you, if I had taken an academic approach to philosophy and talked about how, well, you know, uh, Rousseau talks about our brains in a tank being manipulated by a demon and how will we know, and, right? Yeah, there'd be a couple of people listening, um, listening to me in one ear, Pink Floyd in the other, and um, a whole plate full of exciting brownies on their lap. But we wouldn't be doing, you know, 100, 120 million downloads. We wouldn't have the hundreds of thousands of listeners or more. I don't have no idea. But um, this is because it's actionable. So when you raise children peacefully, you make them smarter, right? There are genetic components to IQ as far as I understand. You could say, some people say like it's a half of your IQ potential is genetic, you can't really test it as much when you're younger because the full expression of IQ waits till brain maturity until 25. You know, like boys and girls when they're born about the same height, but boys end up taller on average than girls. Well, not these days. There's these Amazon Xeno warrior princesses uh, who I guess are getting steroids from meat or something, giant women. But um, so some IQ you can't particularly alter, but some IQ you can, according to research. So uh, if you don't hit your children, you get a couple of IQ points uh, right there, because you're negotiating with them rather than uh, rather than hitting them. Uh, if you um, st- stimulate them with philosophy very early on, I'm pretty sure that helps uh, in terms of uh, IQ. And there are just a couple of other things that you can do, which, again, I, whether it actually increases IQ or simply doesn't retard the development of the brain, I don't know. 
right? Like, I mean, if you don't give a kid enough food, he ends up growing up shorter. But if you give him excess food, he doesn't end up taller. He just reaches the natural maximum of sight. So the goal, of course, is to have kids reach the natural maximum of their IQ potential. And um, there's stuff that uh, we can do around that. And in particular, uh, peaceful parenting, I believe, is going to give children their greatest uh, IQ boost. Uh, and that's not insignificant. I mean, you can check out the research in thebombinthebrain.com or look at my conversations with Alison Gopnik on this channel or um, with uh, other experts. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gershoff talks about it, uh, that you can get a four to six IQ point boost just by not hitting your children. And it's not even like reasoning with them and, and so on, but just not hitting them. Don't traumatize them. Trauma costs IQ. And trauma causes a warp in otherwise intelligent people because trauma gives us this avoidance mechanism. Uh, you know, they get trigger warnings and so on. This is all nonsense. I mean, the best way to deal with stuff that upsets you, which used to be common knowledge, is you confront it. You, you go and deal with your fears. You confront your fears. This avoidance and running away to teddy bear rooms with frolicking puppies, uh, if you hear an idea that's troublesome to you, is, uh, is ridiculous and counterfactual and actually just makes people worse. But anyway, that's a topic for another time. You can check out The Factual Feminist for more on this. Uh, she's got a great video on trigger warming, warnings. So, yeah, right now there are not a lot of uh, smart people who are into self-knowledge uh, who recognize and accept the non-aggression principle and so on. And I get that. But again, that's like saying in uh, 1969 there aren't a lot of people who enjoy using computers. Saying that the present is a pure predictor of the future is ridiculous. And... Um, and the fact that there isn't this uh, argument, that this argument of contempt for the masses is, is very prevalent. Uh, whenever you talk about improving the lot of human beings, people will attempt to, to woo you, to seduce you into a contempt for the masses. And I, I accept and I understand that people reject information based on trauma. They reject data, facts, arguments, reason, evidence, and empiricism based on trauma and based on uh, bigotry and, and prejudice and so on. Well, of course that's the case, right? I mean, naturally, uh, that's the case for evolutionary reasons and the conformity with the tribe gained you access for, to eggs, for the, for the women's eggs. And so uh, anybody who was not conformist to the tribe would uh, not breed, would not reproduce. So all non-conformist genes, they only really emerge in the species as a weird random mutation, testing the waters to see if, right, if society evolves. Evolution requires a vast stability in the gene set along with a small amount of mutations, and most of which are non-beneficial. The same thing with society as a whole. Look at it as a social animal. It requires a large degree of stability, which is conformity, and a small degree of people like me and people like you uh, who, um, who test uh, whether nonconformity and therefore growth and improvement if it's the right kind of nonconformity. Nonconformity with error, with prejudice, with bigotry, with the dull inertia of uh, historical falsehoods. Uh, we test and we see. Yeah, sometimes people test and they see and they get shipped off to a gulag or thrown off a cliff or fed to sharks or sacrificed to the gods. But sometimes, if the technology and the times and the conditions are right, they get the biggest philosophy show in the world and uh, set their minds against improving the human, uh, towards improving the human condition as much as humanly possible. And that's how society uh, progresses. So saying contempt for the herd, well, it's the inertia of the herd that creates the stability that allows for the progress of the species. So saying, well, I, I have contempt for the herd because uh, they're all so conformist and so on. Well, yeah, of course. But I mean, if, if every single gene mutated from one generation to the next, 
you do. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't have any any life. You wouldn't have any progress. It is the, the vast stability and inertia and and conformity of society that creates the relative stability that allows people who want to improve society the stability to be able to create that. I mean, the vast majority of people, vast, vast majority of people who are involved in having us have the capacity to have this conversation, the technologists, the entrepreneurs, the their status, their religious, their, so the people who are working against us philosophically are the same people who have created the stability that allows society to have this kind of communication mechanism. So I can't really get wooed into contempt for the masses uh, because if everybody was a revolutionary, there would be no stability in society uh, to the point where we could have conversations about improving the human condition. Just as if every gene mutated at the same time, generation to generation, there'd be no such thing as life. It would all be um, chaos. Uh, so I, you know, trying to lure me into contempt for the masses uh, is not going to work. I have a great appreciation for the masses. I'm sure that almost all of my food comes from people who significantly oppose me philosophically. Uh, I'm not going to boycott their food because Big Chatty Forehead likes to eat. So have hope, have, hope, have faith in the future. We are working on a presentation uh, about uh, genetics and ideology, which hopefully will clarify some of this stuff. I look forward to your continued questions. You can uh, send them in to us at uh, freedomainradio.com. Uh, and also you can leave comments and we'll pick out stuff that is valuable. Gabriel, great, great question, great comment. Uh, have hope. The methodology of the progress of the species is fortunately well delineated and proven in society. Do not uh, give up. Do not end up hating the horde that gives you food and sustenance and keeps you alive. Uh, it is really an act of intellectual seppuku to imagine that everyone must be like you and I. That would not be valid or valuable and would create too much chaos for society to continue. And I like having some stability on the planet. So, uh, and also freedomainradio.com slash donate uh, if you find these conversations to be valuable. I'm pretty convinced you can't get this kind of stuff anywhere else. And if you find these conversations valuable, we really, really need your help to flourish and to survive. So freedomainradio.com slash donate. Do help us out. You'll feel better. I promise you. Thank you so much. Have yourself a great day.